John 6, this is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to, these, to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, fragments, not fragments, <laughs> that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We give thanks to God for his word. Thanks to the band for, for leading us in praise. Earlier we were singing about the true and better Moses, and as we come to this passage, I think that's what we're going to see, the true and better Moses. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at these verses again in John chapter 6. Father, we come and ask that you will give us ears to hear and eyes that would see really clearly, that we would see who Jesus is, and that we would see what this sign is to point us towards. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've had an experience like I've had where you were watching sport on the TV screen, and um, you looked at the top corner, and you just, well, you just weren't sure what the score was. Uh, maybe you were working away on your laptop, and the fonts that, well, previously they looked pretty good, now just seem a bit blurry and a bit hazy, and you wonder to yourself, why do they make fonts like this now? Maybe you've been reading a book, and you just get tired really quickly, and you think, huh, I used to be able to read much easier. And then you take a trip to the optician, and they give you glasses, and you put on the glasses, 
and everything just seems so much clearer. Those messy fonts are actually really quite clear and sharp. As you look at the, the match, you can see clearly the score, and you can read much, much easier, and it doesn't seem to take the same out of you. Now, I know that for some of you, glasses haven't been able to help the trouble that you have with your eyes. But for many, glasses do just that. Glasses help us to see clearly. They give us, the lenses give us a different view, don't they? They sharpen things up. They bring things into perspective. They give clarity and precision. They help us to see differently. They help us to see clearer. Well, today as we come to this next little section in John's Gospel, I want you to stick on some glasses. And the glasses that I want you to read through are really the, the Exodus lenses. The Exodus lenses. I want you to read John's gospel through the story of Exodus. And I think that's what John intends us to do. And the reason I think that's what John intends us to do is, is the clue in verse 4. I wonder that you pick it up. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Where did you spot that little detail as we read through this miracle? The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Because if you look at the, the verses either side of it, what happens? Well, it, it flows pretty, pretty well without verse 4, doesn't it? Verse 3 flows perfectly well into verse 5. So John must have good reason to, to split them up and interject with, with this little bit of information. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Gospels, you maybe are well aware that the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, or perhaps maybe a better title would be Jesus feeding the great multitude, features in all four Gospels. All four Gospels. Now, there's, there's only really one other miracle that features in all four Gospels, and that's Jesus' resurrection. So this is a significant and important miracle, the fact that all of the Gospel writers have included it. And yet, John is the only one who notes that it takes place at the, time of the pa- at the time of the Passover. And so it seems that this little line, which we can so easily just pass over as we read, I didn't do that on purpose now, <laughs> easily pass over, um, is one that's really important in John's gospel. And it helps us to have eyes to see what John is wanting to say. What is the Passover? Well, it was the feast that the Jews celebrated, commemorating what God had done in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt all of those years before. And we read about that in the book of Exodus, don't we? And maybe you know the story pretty well. God's people were slaves in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. They needed a rescuer, someone who would come and lead God's people out of slavery. And so God raised up a rescuer. Boys and girls, does anyone know who this rescuer was that God raised up to lead God's people out of Egypt? You can turn it out after three, one, two, three. Moses, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Moses. Moses was that rescuer. Moses was the one who had gone into Egypt. He did many signs, you might know them as plagues, which showed that he was indeed God's rescuer and that he had been sent by God. And then Moses led God's people out of Egypt Art of Egypt, they crossed through the Red Sea again, showing God's power and authority. And once they were through the Red Sea, you might remember that they find themselves in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, what happens? They get really, really hungry. And what happened then? Well, God provided for his people, didn't he? 
He rained down bread from heaven. And John says in this passage today, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And so you need to know that for the people, this is what was in their mind. The story of Exodus, that was what was in their mind at that time. They would have been thinking over again and again what God had done, how God had rescued his people, the signs that were done by the deliverer, how God had rescued his people, how God had delivered them through the sea from certain death to life, and how he had provided for this great multitude of people, this multitude of hungry tummies who find themselves in the wilderness. I wonder, are you starting to spot some connections Because once we have that in our minds, I think it gives us a different lens through which to read this story in John's gospel. I think it gives us clarity. I think it gives us precision. And hopefully it will help us to see more clearly what God is saying through these verses. So let's let's jump in. Jesus has uh, just crossed over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great big large crowd have followed Jesus. And we're told the reason why, aren't we? They have saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, they'd watched Jesus do miracles, and he was healing people, and they wanted to see that again. And it's really interesting to to look at the language that John uses here, because he doesn't actually say that they'd saw the miracles that Jesus had done and how he had healed the sick. No, John says, signs. He wants us to interpret the miracles, the healing of the sick in a particular way. He wants us to recognize that these are signs. If you remember back um, a few months ago, whenever we were looking at the the start of of John's gospel, we talked about signs before, uh, and we said that signs are there for a reason. They're to point us to something, but signs are definitely not the destination. You might remember there was one day where we all packed into a car. It was a big car, and we headed to Dublin Zoo. (laughs) And uh, whoever was driving on the way to the Dublin Zoo, what did they do? Once they saw the sign on the motorway for, for Dublin Zoo, they pulled over onto the hard shoulder, and there we spent the rest of the day looking at the sign and all of its glitz and all of its glory. No, that's, that's an awful trip to the zoo, isn't it? When you go to the zoo, you want to see elephants and giraffes and kangaroos and I don't know what else you might see, but you want to see what's actually at the zoo. You don't want to just see the sign. The sign is only there to point us towards something, to point us to something greater. And the crowds, they had seen the signs, but the question that we have to have is this. Had they recognized that these signs were to point them towards something? something much, much greater. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, even at this point, John could be wanting us to picture Jesus going up the mountain and remember another man, Moses, who had also went up a mountain. And when Moses goes up a mountain, something significant happens when he meets with God. So maybe even at this point, John is saying, Jesus is a Moses-like figure. Then look at verse 5. There's a large crowd gathered before them, and they're clearly hungry. They need fed. And so Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, as the reader, we're giving a little bit more information, which really helps us to understand what's going going on. Read verse 6. He said this to test him. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Those little notes that are included by the writer are really helpful for us, because we can kind of see something that those who were there then maybe weren't quite aware of. Jesus was asking this 
to test Philip. You see, Philip was a a disciple of Jesus. He he followed Jesus. And here's the test. Here he is. He's he's up a mountain. He's in a remote place, a a, a desolate place, one of the other gospel writers uh, says. And there's this great big crowd of hungry people set before them. And they need food. They need to be fed. And so the question is, Philip, what are we going to do? Where are you going to go if you need to feed a great multitude in the wilderness? Well, this test is supposed to make him think back to what happened in Exodus, isn't it? It's the Passover. Surely that's what they're thinking about at the time. This should be fresh in their minds. And so the question is, will he go there? Will he go there? All of these people are here in the wilderness. They need fed. So what will he say? Well, if he thinks back to what Jesus has just claimed, Jesus has just claimed to be equal with God in the chapter before. That's what's just happened. If he recognizes that Jesus has claimed to be equal with God, and if he really does believe it to be true, well, then surely he will say, Jesus, where do I go? I come to you. I come to you because you are the only one who's going to be able to feed this great multitude. And yet, what does Philip do? Well, we see that his response is somewhat more practical, very pragmatic. It's in a worldly sense, isn't it? That's that's where he heads, but he doesn't think, hold on, Jesus, you can feed us. And so, in a sense, Philip fails the test, doesn't he? Because his response is this. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Now, denarius was a day's pay for an average laborer, and so Philip's concern is one of pocket. It's about eight months' wages, and he's saying, Whoa, how would this even work? You're asking about buying bread, Jesus? Well, I mean, who's going to pay for it? Who's got that kind of cash with them? And presumably, Philip has mentioned to other disciples at this stage as well. And so one of the other disciples, Andrew, well, he says to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five loaves and, and two fish, but what are they for so many? Just one little boy's lunch, isn't that what we said earlier? One little boy's lunch. And it seems like Philip, Andrew also feels the test, doesn't he? He also feels the test because he brings this one lunch and he says, well, what good is that to us? You can kind of imagine him looking around and be like pointing at the crowd. What good is one little lunch to us? In fact, you have to wonder if the person who did pass the test in this, in this story is actually the little boy. The little boy who himself hands over the five barley loaves and the two fish. I noticed that little note, the barley loaves. John, again, is the only gospel writer to include that, to tell us what type of loaves they are. They are barley loaves. And so if John includes it and others don't, it must be important. What's the significance in barley loaves? Well, barley loaves, well, they're the loaves of the poorest people. The loaves of the poorest. This was no full green nutty crust. No, this was the supermarket own brand, the white pan, the cheapest that you can get. And yet, rather than holding on tightly to what he had for his own lunch, and this boy doesn't have much, Poor as he was, he was happy to give all that he had over to Jesus. Seems to me like he was the one who passed the test. 
And look at what Jesus does with this little boy's lunch. He multiplies it, doesn't he? I mean, we know the story so well, we can kind of miss that. Of course, he multiplies it. What's significant about that? Well, think about what you know from the Exodus story. We know that God does not need a small lunch from which to multiply it. He can just rain down bread from heaven from nothing. This is the great creator God. He doesn't need this little boy's lunch. He could have fed the 5,000 men plus their wives and kids just like that. And yet in this case, he takes the little boy's lunch and he uses it. Doesn't it show something of the care that Jesus has for the individual? Here's a little boy, a poor boy for that matter, a little boy who in the culture of the day really wouldn't have had much value or much worth. And here is Jesus, and he chooses to use what this little boy brings forth to him in order to feed the whole crowd. Can you think of what that must have been like for the little boy? To give what little you had over, and Jesus chooses to use it. He humbly takes what this little boy has given, and Jesus uses it in the way that he sees fit. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a great example for us as we think about humbly giving what we have over to Jesus and praying that Jesus might use it in however he sees fit. Because if we're honest, God does not need us, does he? He doesn't need us at all. God can do whatever he wants without us. It's not that God needs us any more than he needed the lunch of the little boy. And yet, and yet, isn't it amazing that God includes us in what he's doing? Wonder, do you want to be involved this morning? Do you want to be involved in what God is doing? Is there anything better that you could give your life to than than handing it over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, use this for your glory, for your glory? And so I wonder what your life looks like this morning. Is your life marked by generous giving, generous giving of of what you have, and and you might not even have much. Like the little boy, you might say, I don't have much to give. But I wonder, is your life marked by generous giving of what God has given to you? What about finance this morning as we uh, think about a a new year coming into church life? We bring our our offerings to God. You, You see that the baskets, in a sense, sitting out there every day in the, in the foyers, we come to church. As part of our worship, we, we bring our offering to God. I wonder, do you give? And do you give generously? Um, perhaps I know if you, if you do give and you pay tax, well, actually, if you check the Gladys, you'll be able to get your gifted form and you can sign and you can get lots more uh, that we can use as a church. But as you look through the, the pattern of God's people, A pattern of worship, giving is a key part of that, and financially giving is is one of the ways that we do that. And as you look through God's Word, what do we see? We see a pattern of of 10% being a starting point, a starting point in our giving. And so if we want to be generous, I I think it's going to be more than that, isn't it? What about time? I wonder, do you serve? Do you serve in the church family here? There's, there's so many ways that you can serve, and we really encourage every member to think of at least one way that they can serve the, the, the church family together. We're a body, and so we serve each other. Uh, if you go down the, the corridor towards the, the toilets, you'll see a, a notice board with um, updated ways of, uh, in which you can serve within the church. I wonder, are you using your time to, to serve? 
What about your gifts? Are there particular things that you can do as part of this body that would really strengthen the body together, bringing your gifts to the table and letting others in the church family benefit from it? And what about your heart as you, as you bring Oh, what does your heart say? Is your heart longing to bring uh, out of response to what God has done for you? You think, yes, I, I want to give. Or is it a real struggle where like you come with clenched fists rather than handing over the lunch like the little boy? You're saying, no, 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 I want to keep the little lunch for myself. I don't want to share it with anyone. I don't want to give what I have over to Jesus. Well, Jesus, he, he took the loaves. He, he gives thanks and then he distributed it. He does the same with the fish. And everyone ate until they were full. Isn't that incredible? 500 of us here, 5,000 at least there, and, and everyone ate one little lunch and they were full. And all you can eat buffet from one lunch. Doesn't really make sense, doesn't it? And then we read that Jesus sends out his disciples to collect the leftovers so that nothing was wasted. And what do they come back with? Well, 12 baskets. 12 baskets. They come back with 12 baskets. I mean, there's more at the end than there was in the beginning. I mean, this just doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't make sense. And surely each disciple as he walks around with a basket and he asks people to put in the leftovers and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier, heavier and he comes back to Jesus. Surely they have this wonderful visual ear as they look down and they think, boy, this is a sign that points us to who Jesus really is, the Son of God. The claim that he had made to be equal with God is matched by his power and authority. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And so in some sense, in some sense, the sign has worked, okay? Because they've realized that this sign is pointing them towards something. And the response is, Jesus is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, the prophet that they had been waiting for uh, mentioned back in, in Deuteronomy. In other words, we recognize that you are like Moses, the one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah figure. And so in, in that sense, they, they spot the right answer. And yet, they also get to the wrong answer because the Messiah that they had in their minds, well, he would not be Jesus. What they had in their minds was a different type of Messiah. They want Jesus to be king there and then. They want him to take on Roman rule there and then. They want Jesus to be a political king who will give them what they want there and then. They want Jesus to be the king, the Messiah that they have in their own image. And here's the thing, you can't do that with Jesus. You can't just make him into the God that you want him to be. Now Jesus dictates the terms and conditions. You cannot come to Jesus and, and make demands of him as if he's some sort of puppet. No, that is not the Jesus that we meet here in Scripture. Jesus is the one who is in control, and no one takes that control away from him. That's a, a theme that we see throughout John's Gospel again and again and again, a theme of timing. Often it says that his hour has not yet come yet. And, and, and here, what do we notice? Well, they try to take him away by force, and yet with all of the crowds, this huge number, at least 5,000 people, what happens? Jesus just withdrew. <laughs> withdrew to the mountain by himself. 
and you wonder, is this another miracle? With all the people who are trying to get their hands on him, Jesus just withdrew. He's a man who's in control, isn't he? Let's look at that. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. I wonder how you'd feel if you were one of the disciples at this point. Um, might have been something of a sense of pride, possibly. You know, you're one of the closest people to Jesus, and you see what he's just done. Maybe a sense of pride. Wonder what you've been talking about with the other disciples as you get into the boat, thinking about what Jesus has just done, this, this incredible miracle. Would that have been talked about as you get in? Then they head off across the sea. And it's dark. It's dark. And Jesus, well, he's not there. And the sea becomes rough. There's a strong wind blowing. And they're now three or four miles out into the sea. That's about halfway across at its widest part. So they're in the middle. And what do they see? Well, now they see Jesus. But what is Jesus doing? Jesus is walking on water. He's walking on water and he's coming near to the boat. And what is, what is the disciples' response now? Well, it's one of great fear, isn't it? It's great fear. They may have been scared when the boat was in, in difficulties. Great big storm will now. Now they're even more afraid. And then look at what Jesus says. He said, it is I. Do not be afraid. If you go back to the Greek, it literally translates as, I am. I am. Now, does that sound familiar? I am? I mean, who else says those very words in the book of Exodus? Wasn't that how God identifies himself to Moses at the bush? The great I am. And as Jesus comes walking over the water, he is saying to his disciples, you need to see who I am. You need to see I am God. I am God. You need to see the signs, and you need to see what these signs are pointing to. Because these signs are so that the disciples may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in his name. And as we read God's words, as we hear of this miracle, this sign this morning, well, it's supposed to bring about that very same response in us. We're to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing and receiving him, we might have life in his name. You see, Jesus is no ordinary man, is he? No ordinary man. He's not just some teacher from God. He's not even a prophet just like Moses, one of God's people who rescued his people. No, he's, he's the son of God. He's not just like another rescuer. He is the son of God, the true and better Moses, the true and better rescuer. And isn't that what happens when he comes to his disciples? There they are in the midst of the darkness, despair, a storm, that could have very easily led to their death. And yet Jesus comes and leads them through the storm, out of death, into life, bringing them to the other side. You see, the story of the Exodus and the Passover is really a foreshadowing of what was to come. Moses is really a, a type of Jesus. That's what we see. The one whom God would raise up to rescue his people Although he is the true and better 
Moses because his delivery that he brings isn't just from Egypt, but rather his delivery is from sin and from death. And he leads all of his people through death and into life. And he's taken the punishment for his people on the cross. He's lived the life that they could not live. And his resurrection already shows the path for the believer that they will one day rise again to. The grave is not the end of the story for the believer. And just as Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over nature by by walking across this tempestuous sea, you can be sure that he can deliver on his promise of eternal life. And so as we get to the end of these verses, let me ask you the question, do you see? Do you see clearly who Jesus really is? Are you recognizing his identity as the Son of God, the Christ? And are you believing in and receiving him as your Savior and Lord? Jesus is the true and better Moses the true and better Moses. And if we come to Jesus, well, then he will give us much more than the benefits of a full tummy. But we will know the joys of everlasting life. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we know that we can often be blind to see. Even though we've got your word before us and these signs are written in black and white, we hear them spoken of in church and read aloud for us. And yet we can feel to see. And so today I pray that you would have opened our eyes, that we might see clearly, that we might see clearly that Jesus is the true and better Moses, the one whom can lead us from death to eternal life. Might we be putting our hope and trust in him today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.